whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report, and this is Dr. Lee for America, and here with my co-host, Hedley Reese, for the Inside Pharma Report, looking at the inside of this black box that is big pharma and hiding information from the public about what's really going on in the trenches in big pharma and what they are really doing and some of the supply chain issues, some of the distribution quality standards, some of the safety issues, the whole gamut. Hedley Reese is an expert in this field. He has spent nearly a 40-year career looking and studying and consulting and overseeing, researching and writing about the proper good manufacturing practices that are necessary in order to bring us safe vaccines and medicines. And today, Headley's going to be talking about a topic that probably most people across America and maybe in other countries as well have not heard anything about. This is a new undertaking between the MHRA Medicines Regulatory Authority in the UK and a company called Genomics England to launch what they describe as a pioneering resource to better understand how genetic makeup influences the safety of medicine. Gee, that sounds like a pretty lofty goal and it sounds like it's such a good thing, but is it really? Do you trust big pharma and big government to have your genetic makeup database? Because that's the goal and that's what they're going to be doing in creating something called a yellow card biobank. America and all of you listening around the world, there are some ominous aspects to this new genetic initiative, collecting genetic data on unsuspecting patients. So Headley's going to tell us all about it today and what his concerns are going forward and what you need to know to decide whether or not to allow your genetic data to be included in this Biobank yellow card. Thank you, Headley, for bringing this to my attention and to our listeners. So, tell us more about this new initiative and your concerns. 
Yes, thanks, Dr. Lee. Um, it's, um, it's taken for granted here and has been for 10, 15, 20 years that your health is dependent on your genes and either you're lucky or you're, you're, you're not lucky. Um, and, but there's more, much more, more to it than that. I hosted a conference in Wales, uh, May 2019, and I, invent, I invited a range of people with certain skills. One of them was a gentleman uh, named Dr. Ray Perkins, an expert in drug development and, and research, a real expert. And one of the things that he, he said clearly was that the genes are destiny model is broken. So this is an expert saying, um, you know, the fact that you know someone's DNA, it doesn't mean very much unless you have other information as well. And uh, I, 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 this was all written up in a white paper. And he finished off by saying, functional proteomics must occupy center stage in the eyes of researcher and decision maker alike. Now, you know better than I about pro proteomics, uh, Dr. Lee, but the way I, I heard it explained was that it's not just your genes, it's your environment. There's all sorts of factors that contribute to ill health or health. So the assumption from the MHRA that by collecting genetic data, they're suddenly going to be able to develop new wonderful drugs is, uh, I think, is a complete um, mistake based on the real people who know about medical research. And I've got this all written up, and I, I can share this with, uh, with, with, with listeners. So we're saying there, okay, it's old hat that genes really fully determine your health. And there are other um, uh, uh, approaches to it that actually say, you know, you can't get an awful lot by analyzing patient data or patient's DNA. So, so that's the first thing to say. And then, of course, um, the project is, is around collecting DNA and then being able to work out how the side effects um, can be brought on by something about the patient's DNA. So they've picked some very niche, uh, what we call indications or, or, or diseases, very rare diseases, uh, Stephen Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal ne necrolysis um, for this first phase. Now, the number of patients with those uh, diseases and the drugs for them will be very, very small. And when they talk about collecting this data, th there's very little explanation of what they're going to do with it. So how are they going to take this data, this raw data of people's DNA and convert that into a, a program that identifies the side effects that are caused by a certain drug? Now, that is a monumental undertaking. And without knowing how they're going to do that, it's, it, it's puzzling me how they would actually um, start to do this in the UK and 
all I would fall back on again is that on previous Inside Farmers, we, we've said that the Bill and Melinda Gate Foundation are using the uh, UK as the test bed, the launch pad for uh, mRNA vaccines and other mRNA type products. They've captured the regulatory bodies, MHRA, was um, was run by Dr. Ian Hudson, who now works for Bill Gates. And suddenly they've set up this biobank. They already charge for almost every service that a, a company developing drugs might want. So if you have scientific advice from the MHRA, you have to pay one, two, three, four thousand pounds. There is actually a price list depending on what you need. And now you can see what's happening here. There's going to be um, MHRA now are going to be convert into a, a pharmaceutical company where they've got their own biobank, they've got their own data, they've got their own regulator. And before you know it, they are supplying the world with uh, Bill, Bill Gates uh, trademarked drugs. So th that's why this caught my attention, Dr. Lee, because um, it, it's spending a lot of money on, on something with, a, with an organization, Genomics England, which basically has got no connection with the nuts and bolts of developing and supplying drugs to international markets. Genomics England is a very sort of, uh, I'm sure they're all good people, but it's very much focused on um, the minutiae, I would say, of drug development. Well, and not only that, Hedley, but this is this is, I think, in light of the disaster, the catastrophic damage that's come from the mRNA COVID shots unleashed on an unsuspecting world and pharma lying and government lying about the safety and effectiveness of the mRNA shots and no regulatory oversight in the manufacturing and all kinds of contamination issues coming up, who in the world, who in their right mind at this point in time would trust the medical health regulatory authority in the UK and a small private company that stands to make a huge profit who who would trust them to number one have the right motives and number two how are they going to use the genetic data that that they are collecting from unsuspecting patients and number three how are they going to oversee proper manufacturing and distribution quality control and safety i mean this is absurd these people are just coming up with these wild ideas to make money with no thought of how to deliver a product safely and protect lives, which makes me wonder if their goal is to protect lives or to end lives. It does make you wonder. Uh, the other thing I would say is that I, I, almost every day now I get an email from um, some conference organizer or a supplier of uh, equipment or materials into the mRNA space 
saying, you know, this is a huge new thing, it's a wonderful thing, and, you know, let's talk about it. So it, it's it's getting a life of its own within within inside the industry, which I think people don't realise. We've had this, you know, this three years with mRNA and, and the DNA vaccines, but people don't realise that this, the, the, the industry has moved on 20 stages. They're now planning uh, products coming through in at, at light speed with no proper quality control. We know the regulations. We know for certain in the UK, the regulators um, have not used quality control because I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week, but I attended... Um, uh, uh, MHRA symposium in February at the kind um, uh, uh, facilitation of UK Column, which is a very excellent news source um, uh, in, in, in the UK. And I spent the day listening to the various presentations. And, and I thought I'd been shipped to another planet. I all, honestly did. Uh, they were in what admitted. way? What were they saying that seemed out of touch with reality? Well, they admitted that they were ship what's known as shipping under quarantine, which means you can ship the product before it's finished testing. So, uh, so the company that made the drug substance could ship that on to the next stage, which is the the fill finish, the filling into vials before it, it had finished testing. Now this testing, because they're biologics, it takes weeks, if not a month or so. And uh, so was, when the other company gets the product, they should put it into a, a non-available status, into a quarantine status and hold it until they get notification from the sending company that we've finished our testing and yes, it has passed. Now, you wonder what are the odds of the receiving company actually waiting until they had the nod for that to be a successful test? And the other thing, if it was- I would say those odds are about zero. <laughs> and the other thing, if it wasn't successful, what are the odds on the company shipping it saying it wasn't successful? Because the company that, that's now got it will not, they'd be dependent on that to for their production. So the whole thing is a nonsense. So there was no quality control as we know it throughout. I would say that's globally hmm. because if it's happening in one country, all the other countries have to accept the same the same thing. The other thing was, of course, um, they were using uh, Microsoft uh, HoloLens 2 for the virtual inspections. Now, I've said before, a virtual inspection is as useful as a chocolate teapot. You know, when you have an inspection, you want the, the, the inspector to be physically there looking in the nooks and crannies where they don't want you to look deciding where he wants to go or she wants to go. In in this case, the company had someone with a, 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 um, a this HoloLens camera on their head and they would walk around just, you know, take sh showing pictures of what they wanted the regulators to see and, and supplying data that they asked for. But, you know, 
that you don't know that you, you, you've got to touch and feel and see and see the people creating the data to really be sure that it's uh, it, it's it, 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 it's a proper uh, company working to proper standards. So and it wasn't just Hololens. There was talk of virtual reality, machine learning, um, uh, um, all sorts of wild and weird technologies that are again in their infancies. You know, this is a physical world, and we know what's been the the, the risks with AI now that are starting to come out. Again, I'm not an expert on that, but. You know, artificial intelligence is artificial. That is the word. And the intelligence uh, bit is created by humans as algorithms. So these are just algorithms. So there's no way that the um, artificial intelligence will know anything other than human beings have told it. And it gets it wrong quite often. You know, I sometimes get an email from Amazon asking if I'd be interested in one of my books that I've got on Amazon. Well, uh, you know, the the nuances that you need to understand in any situation, you can't code that into artificial intelligence. And I think what we're seeing now is the artificial intelligence companies like Microsoft and IBM, etc., they are desperate to get their products out there. And the pharma industry is probably a good bet because so people know so little about what's actually going on inside the industry. That's why I enjoy doing this show with you, Dr. Lee. Well, and I absolutely enjoy doing it with you to educate the public about what's going on inside this big black box that is big pharma, because it has been very difficult as a physician, even much less the the lay public, to really know what they're doing behind the scenes. The clinical fraud that I have personally been exposed to in the course of my medical career goes back to fraud with Wyeth Erst and the Norplant clinical trials that were done in South America. And then they hid the negative data and the serious side effects before they, they brought the data to the FDA. Well, most of us don't have any way to know that. I happen to have been asked to be a plaintiff's expert in testifying in the class action lawsuit. And so lawyers during discovery got the documents from the clinical trial to be able to show how they had hidden the damaging data. And the same occurred with Prozac, the same occurred with Vioxx, Prozac, the SSR or serotonin reuptake inhibitor that was just the golden boy released in 1988. And then Vioxx, an anti-inflammatory medicine. The list goes on and on. And I am just scratching the surface from the ones that I was involved in. And it's, it's 
truly alarming to now see what you're bringing to light that has gone on with the mRNA COVID shots that is orders of magnitude more damaging and more cover-up and greater lack of safety and manufacturing quality oversight than we've than I've ever been aware of in my entire medical career. It's truly staggering. Yes, in, indeed. Um, I think you might be fed up of me saying this, but people must realize that drugs aren't uh, brought to market through serendipitous findings. Uh, they come to market through blood, sweat, and tears of a collection of, of cross disciplines working collaborative, collaboratively together. At least that's the way it used to work. Um, and they are physical products. So the um, the the physical aspects like sourcing raw materials and starter materials, the procurement process, the lead times, the facilities that have to convert materials into more valuable materials, then ship them on, the logistics. It should be obvious. Um, it would be obvious in any other sector if someone developed the, a product uh, 10 times quicker than ever before, but not only developed it, but got it up to full global scale in nine months, then people would be you know, jumping on that like a ton of bricks. And it, it does make me wonder why the public have believed you could do this with physical products. And, you know, that's why my, uh, my uh, a sort of ambition is to bring educa education to to, to the people who, who who need to understand, A, what questions to ask, and B, when you ask the questions, to know whether you're being fobbed off with something that's completely wrong. And that's what's happened throughout the whole of COVID. Um, we've been told that, you know, there's a, there's a code, a uh, genetic code, and you just flick a switch and the code is converted into a vaccine, and before you know it, it pops out the ground, and you know we've got more than uh, we 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 ever uh, dreamt of. It's you know, it's almost it, like an Alice in Wonderland scenario where people are living in a fantasy world about how this is developed and about how you can develop something in, in such a cavalier way with no safety and quality oversight and no extensive clinical trial testing, how you can cavalierly say that it's safe and effective when you haven't even done the test to determine that. Yeah, it, it, exactly. I, you know, I, I wonder, I, I know that people inside the industry working on these things know that the you know, the checks and balances have not been there. But I just wonder whether governments, politicians uh, are just listening to what they're being told. No questions because they want, you know, their country to get the benefit of pharmaceutical manufacture and that whole thing. And 
really they they don't understand how dangerous these the these vaccines are i just i can't imagine even <laughs> as you said even politicians but you know how could people willingly and knowingly um or because these vaccines were ordered by governments certainly in the uk they were ordered by the you know the head of uh, uh the health and social care um function uh, whatever you call it and knowing that they've been rushed to market and all all the issues did they really understand i know it's whether they did or not it happened and they did it so but i i struggle with the mindset now that we've got in the industry as if you know it doesn't matter if you kill people uh because we're still going to make a good profit well i think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is that those funding it, like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bill Gates has been on record for 25 years saying he thinks we need to f- reduce the world's population. So I think the bottom line is the people funding all of this and pushing the agenda globally through the World Health Organization and global control as a public health response directed by WHO, funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, among Klaus Schwab and others, we're really looking at the fact that it's carrying out the agenda of depopulation so that politicians become the useful idiots that they're using to further that agenda by promising the moon with these vaccines that really are not vaccines. So I think it's it's certainly bigger than and more evil than just profit and everyone focusing on, oh, we can make all of this money. I, I really do think it's bigger than that. And I think we've talked many times about the fact that it's a political, economic, medical battle for global control. But it's also a spiritual battle between the forces of good and evil and those that wish to destroy and alter God's gift of life. Going back to your AI point, it's very interesting how they no longer call it artificial intelligence. It's now the biggest buzzword is AI, AI, because that obscures the very word that you pointed out that it is artificial and therefore limited. So I, th- I think there is much we can talk about on all of this, but I want to come back in the second half after the break to discuss more about what is the hype about this yellow card biobank initiative between the MHRA and Genomics England And what may be some of the realities that our listeners need to be aware of. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report Inside Pharma with your co-host, Hedley Reese, the expert on Inside Pharma. And we'll be right back after the break. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org, where we now have 
the ability for you to play all of our episodes right there from the player on our website at www.truthforhealth.org, or you can go directly to www.whistleblowerreports.org, in addition to hearing us here on America Out Loud Talk Radio, Monday through Friday, 12 noon and 12 midnight Eastern Time, and on the Global Podcast Networks. So there's no excuse for missing one of our shows. We'll be right back after the break. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code OUTLOUD and get 20% off. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. This message is from the Truth for Health Foundation. Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Sigloff, a family medicine physician and a major in the U.S. Army. The following are only my opinions. Service members are being coerced to participate in medical experimentation, with over 7,500 service members being discharged for refusing to participate. Many of them have lost their retirement and medical benefits. There are allegations that the DOD is committing medical fraud, violating the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and violating the constitutional rights of service members. Strong men and women stand ready to defend so that you can sleep peacefully through the night. Now we must stand watch over the military so they can sleep peacefully through the night. Please get involved to help protect the military. This message brought to you by the Truth for Health Foundation. For more information, please visit truthforhealth.org. That is truthforhealth.org. Truth, the word for, health.org. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, Inside Pharma, with 
Headley Reese exposing the black box that is Big Pharma hiding information from you about just how these drugs and vaccines are developed. It's quite an eye-opening journey down this road. And I hope that you are listening each week on Fridays for the Inside Pharma Report. Now, in the first segment, we talked about Genomics England and the Medical Health Regulatory Authority in England are pioneering a new collaboration, which they claim is to better understand how genetic makeup influences the safety of medicines. All of that sounds very good. And we certainly know, for example, Mayo Clinic and others have done laboratory, have developed laboratory tests that assess the cytochrome P450 metabolism pathway in the liver that has influenced by our genetic makeup. And they can give us some estimates of how people might metabolize certain medicines based upon what genetic mutations are present. So we have used that technology clinically. It's not 100%, but it does help physicians have a guideline of which class of medicines, for example, in the antidepressant category, might be better tolerated by a particular patient. There is that value, but the concern here with what's going on in England and this yellow card biobank, their stated goal is, quote, by collecting genetic samples from patients who have experienced side effects, the yellow card biobank will create a repository of genetic information that can be used to help determine whether a suspected side effect was caused by a specific genetic trait, end quote. But that raises two important questions that I want Headley Reese, our expert, to address. Number one, they are collecting your data your genetic data, but not presenting to the public the methods to be used to correlate the drug side effects with people's genetic makeup. So the question that I want Headley to speak to is, is this another journey into fantasy land? The second question, what are they going to be doing with the data they collect? How are they going to be using it? And will it be used for selective rationing of medical care, as has happened during the COVID pandemic, to eliminate people that they don't want to have the government pay for treatment? So these are critical questions, Headley, and I would like for you to speak to some of these. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'd be pleased to. Well, 
I think I have to sort of um, return to the real world and just explain something about how drugs are developed and approved, because when you know that, you're in a much better position to understand what's, um, what's going on here. So uh, I mentioned serendipity earlier, um, and we know the penicillin tale is that uh, Alexander Fleming made a, an accidental discovery in his laboratory in August 2028, sorry, <laughs> 1928, when he returned from holidays. But he couldn't isolate what was in the mold that he found there that appeared to be killing bacteria. It took him 11 years to um, find Oxford University who could do that for them. And Oxford University isolated the active ingredient and they ran clinical trials um, and preclinical studies. And they were successful showing that penicillin really did have a future but they couldn't make any more than small gram quantities. So they flew off to the US to speak to an expert in the manufacture of molds, a guy named Andrew J. Moyer, and he devised the process so that the yield was exponentially higher than what it had been. And uh, that meant they could make 10 quantities of penicillin and the process was given to some of the large pharmaceutical companies and they supplied the world uh, and uh, was obviously very, um, very critical uh, during World War II. So there were three uh, skill sets involved there as a minimum. You had the physician who made the discovery. Planning obviously was interested in infection and uh, he was doing experiment. You had the discovery, then you had um, the, 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 the analytical chemists who could actually isolate an active ingredient. And then you had the expert in manufacture who could actually devise the process. And that process was patented by Andrew Moyer. Uh, he applied in 1945. In 1948, it was uh, uh, given to him. And he was inducted to the U.S. Hall of Fame in... Uh, let me think, 1954, I may have said 2000 I'm, I'm, I'm on some of those other dates, but uh, 1945, 1948, uh, the patent was, uh, pattern was given, and 1954, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. So why I'm saying this is that you need an awful lot of skill sets together, working collaboratively together to be able to bring a drug to market. But the industry decided, uh, I'm going back now to early 90s, 1980s, that serendipity was probably a, quite a good thing. And they set up what's known as discovery research. These are organizations within the pharmaceutical industry whose job is to discover molecules that might be able to cure a condition. So they set up molecular modeling and all sorts of activities in discovery research and they would screen thousands of molecules and then pick particular ones which they thought could become a drug and they'd be called uh, development candidates and they'd be handed over to another group of people the drug developers who 
had never seen this compound before. It's been given to them by Discovery Research. And their role is to take it to market. They need to do the safety testing, the clinical testing, and build the supply chain, and then get that approved by the regulator. And we know that typically takes 10, 10 years. Now, what's happening in the MHRA is they've got the discovery research function. So with the Biobank and Genomics England, they are doing the discovery research. They're doing all this modeling to work out um, what how a particular drug is going to perform. But what they've missed out is the actual process of bringing the drug to market because all they'd be doing is identifying possible molecules that could do something. But until you actually put it into development, manufacture it and scale and get it approved by the regulator, it doesn't exist. And what the patient gets is not what happened in discovery research, it's what happens through the, all the stages of development that have gone into getting the drug to the patient and that's what the patient gets in their, their their body. So we know there are official figures from the U.S. Accountability Office that go like this. Discovery Research screens 10,000 molecules. Uh, 250 of those go into uh, development, into the development pipeline. Out of that 250, only five go into the clinic. So 245 fail. They go down the pan. Huge cost. And out of that five that go into the clinic, only one gets to market. So the failure rates in the industry are astronomical. And when they talk about $2.6 billion to develop a new drug, probably over $2 billion of it is just on the cutting room floor. It's just failed failed studies. So all this messing about with genomics and uh, modeling and that isn't going to bring the drugs to market. Uh, so if they take a marketed drug for a particular condition and they want to um, they want to work out what side effects is potentially having in patients. It's the drug that was manufactured they need to look at, not what they're doing in discovery research, which is just basically test tube and, and what they call in silico modeling, which is computer modeling. So it's completely detached from reality. So I'm I'm afraid we are back in 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 the land of uh, <laughs> the land of fantasy here, and but people believe it because they haven't really got the full picture of you know what uh, what what needed to be done to bring a drug to market. But that then begs the question, as you said, Doctor Lee. What are they going to do with patients' data? What are they going to do with it? Well, no one knows, do they? Um, there is Sir John Bell, who has been very active in UK life sciences. Um, he is uh, um, credited with um, major uh, discoveries in genomics, and he's advised the government 
life sciences policies since about 2011-2012. But he's a scientist. He's, you know, I'm sure he's very clever and he does, a, you know, a lot of work on, on genomics. But unless you are steeped in the um, uh, various challenges and requirements for bringing a safe, effective quality drug to market, then you're only working on the fringes. So one of the issues, I think, is, is that uh, in the UK, the government has been uh, uh, coining new, new life sciences policies when they've been advised by basically by people who have never brought a drug to market in their lives and have, don't actually work inside the pharma industry. So that, that's the bugbear that, that, that I've got, that the, the voices that are advising governments on uh, the processes to bring drugs to market, even with this new mRNA, they are saying these are fine, they are safe and effective, but how will they know? Because they don't have a background in drug development and commercialization. So you know that's the question that that, that I would. I don't know if that helps, but um... well, it does help. I I think if we look at the question of what what will they do with the data? I mean, I know what they say they're going to do, which which is oh, we're we're going to use this to help people help doctors make good decisions about what medicines to use for a given patient. But over the course of my medical career, what big pharma claims it's going to do or what the government claims it's going to do doesn't translate into actual action. In fact, many times it can translate into exactly the opposite. I mean, all we have to do is look at medically what happened during the COVID pandemic when government claimed and big pharma claimed that remdesivir was safe, the mRNA shots were safe, and doctors were pressured by the government to use these modalities, these products, I don't even want to call them therapeutic modalities because they haven't been therapeutic. They've been very damaging. But doctors were forced to use these products by government directives and by incentive payments to the doctors and hospitals to use these products. With the end result that more than half of the people who got remdesivir in the hospitals when they were treated for COVID died from the toxicity of the drug. And we are seeing massive escalating deaths, cancers, heart attacks, strokes, dementias, reproductive damage, infertility, stillborn babies across the, around the world from the mRNA shots. So what, how can anyone today with what has been happening for the last three years, not counting what's happened with big pharma in many ways over the last 40 years, I've been in medicine and you've been in, 
your career inside pharma, how can anyone assume a positive motivation and a altruistic agenda with this genetic data bank that they're now proposing? Yeah, I, I think it's very ominous, and I think it can easily be misused to target people for rationing of medical care and preventing people with certain genetic mutations from getting treatment. So, oh, well, you have a genetic mutation, and we don't think that you have the quality of life that is necessary to warrant paying for your medical care in the NHS, for example, which is where this is beginning. So when the government controls payment for medical care, as Medicare, Medicaid do in the US and the NHS does in the UK, they decide what you will get. And I wrote about this 20 years ago when 1998, I think it was the National Institute of Clinical Excellence or Clinical Effectiveness in the UK, the NICE board was set up and they decided, okay, for example, the drug Lucentis to treat uh, macular degeneration. You had to go blind in one eye in England before you could be treated to save the other. That was a government decision. That certainly wasn't in the interest of the patient. And there were many examples of that from the NICE board in England long before Obamacare was brought to the U.S. based on the same principles of government decisions about what treatment is allowed. And I see that this genetic database can be used exactly the same nefarious way. Yeah, the, one thing, I, I keep coming back to the UK, but one thing, we've always um, been taking pride in the fact that the NHS is free of the point of care. Uh, but also, um, you know, this, the, the, we're probably the only country in the world where this data could be harvested and made available to other countries and... Uh, um, you know, so I'm not saying, you know, that the data could be sold or whatever. I don't know. But uh, it, 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 when you've got a situation where data is being, data's being collected and you don't know why, and, and, and then you know that, you know, a person's DNA is, is, is quite a sensitive um, piece of data to, to co- uh, collect, you, you, you have to wonder... I think this conversation is, uh, is 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 confirming that there seems to be very little case evidence case for collecting this date, data or these data for the um, indications they are talking about and how they're actually going to to do it by by way of mechanism and this is, to me feels just more of well, we'll just tell them what we're doing and they're so stupid, they believe us. I honestly think that um, they've got away with this for so long now, they think that we're all stupid and we're just going to 
soak up whatever's what we are told, but that's not the case. In the UK, I, I'm working with three different groups who are very active in um, fighting what's going on at the moment. There's suddenly real collaboration going on. Uh, they're picking their data points, they're picking their targets. Uh, the, the you know the, this IHR the who the, the the who treaty that's really being fought hard um, to stop and there's various other um, things going on in the UK that people are pushing back very hard on and every day that goes by uh, people are pushing harder and harder back on the MHRA. Obviously, but politicians as well. We've got Andrew Bridgen, who um, who's been making real waves, and, and he's asking real searching questions in Parliament. So I think this is only going one way. People are going to, you know, every day more comes out, more people get behind uh, exposing what's going on. You know, these things don't go back in the box. Once they're out, they keep coming out. And uh, my experience is there's more and more and more people really understanding what's going on. And, you know, that's that's a good thing. Um, and the, 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 I think we had this conversation previously, Dr. Lee. Collaboration has got to be the only way that we can nail this. No one's got all the pieces of the puzzle. You know, we all got a little bit or some got more than others. But in the main, uh, we don't have all of it as individuals, but in totality, with collaboration between the people who, who know these things, you know, we could make giant steps forward. And I just sense that collaboration is starting to, to build up. And I, I hope it continues. Well, I, I hope so, too. And, and it is critical to have this collaboration and have these honest discussions among people and looking at ways that we can share our knowledge and share strategies for stopping the assault on our freedom and our lives. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just looking at um, uh, a, a, an email here from Trial Site News. Um, the CEO, the founder and CEO, Daniel O'Connor, he's a very, very ethical, upfront, um, wide awake person. But he 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 uh, holds a very good balance between uh, for and against. You know, he uses logic and argument. And I just uh, he said one news all uh, come from Trialside News. What's the United Kingdom Kingdom's COVID inquiry, and why are UK ministers so hell bent on stopping it? Now the UK government is uh, turning itself inside out, trying to stop any sort of proper inquiry into what happens with COVID, and they've had to have an extension on the evidence that they've. Uh, been been submitting, but I think, and and, and again, I'd, I'd recommend anyone uh, who wants to um, get good information. Trial site news is always a, a good source. 
of honest um, information. And it's just made me think, <laughs> I keep going back to the UK, but why is the government so hell-bent on not having a proper inquiry into COVID? I don't know. Well, I think, I, I, I'm, I, I suspect that it's because they don't want people to know what actually has gone on. But well, I think that's exactly right. I think that's that's why the same thing is happening in the U.S. And one of the things, Hedley, we we very much want to hear from your member of parliament, Andrew Bridget, as soon as you can arrange it. I think getting him on this program to bring his questions to parliament to the American audience, because these are the same questions that Americans should be demanding get answered by our government. And they, they have not been. So I, I, I think we need to collaborate in that way as well. He is powerful in asking extraordinarily important questions, but we need more people around the world doing that. And I want to thank you for all that you've brought to us today. I'm very concerned about the ramifications of this yellow card genetic biobank, and I think we need to stay on top of the developments with that. As we wrap up the show today, I want to thank you for all you're doing on this front and your dedication to the Truth for Health Foundation Advisory Council and the Truth for Health Foundation whistleblower report inside pharma. Stay tuned for a weekly report inside pharma from Headley Reese. This is Dr. Lee for America. And check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org. Sign up to join our crusade, get our alerts, donate to support our efforts to bring truth and help defend freedom as we move into the next phase of more pandemics coming to steal our freedom and perhaps steal our genetic data for nefarious purposes. We'll be back again next week with another Inside Pharma report. Thank you for being with us today. 